Good morning. Uh, it's first Sunday of the month, so that means it's what we call all in around here at Bay Marin. So I want to invite our children who aren't already up here to come on up and uh, enjoy these wonderful crafts that have been provided for you. And enjoy my presence, because we get to be close to each other this morning. Isn't that fun? <laughs> now, this was really bothering Tom, so he came up during the offertory to straighten it, but it's still kind of crooked, so I'm just, for Tom's sake, no, uh, no Charlie Brown Christmas trees here. Um, you remember when uh, Renee, the executive director of Gilead House, was with us a few weeks ago, and she brought a resident at the Gilead House with her? Uh, they sent us a little note I wanted to share with you. Says uh, they start with a text from 1 Corinthians 13 Faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Gilead House is so grateful for your continued support of moms and kids. It was an absolute joy for us to be invited to share the mission of Gilead House, worship with you, and enjoy your warm fellowship. Because of you, families have a safe home to live in, surrounded by a healthy, strong community. For the greatest degree of success, with gratitude, prayers, and our love, Renee. Uh, Gilead House has a table back there for our Christmas bazaar, so you can support them, as does Be to Live, as does Plant with Purpose, as does Creative Interfaces. Now, uh, I'm not picking favorites. They all have amazing and wonderful things, but I just got to tell you, Karen hand-painted, hand-painted some ornaments, and they are unbelievable. So... uh, Check them out. We're in Ruth. Yes, the book of Ruth for Advent. And we are jumping into Ruth chapter 3 this morning. But uh, I intended to finish Ruth 2 last week and didn't, so we're going to read those final verses. Uh, But just to recap where we've been, Ruth is this amazing story showing us a community who loves well, lives at peace together well, in the midst of a world of violence and strife all around them. Ruth is a story that shows us what love looks like in action. The the storyteller uses the word hesed. Say hesed. Hesed. It, It is this beautiful Hebrew word that connects to the loving kindness of God and how God's loving kindness flows through others to God's world. And it it has this idea of uh, extreme loyalty connected to it. And we see uh, this woman, Naomi, who loses everything. She loses her husband, she loses her two sons, and we see this other woman, Ruth, who was married to one of Naomi's sons, loses her husband, and she shows this unbelievable hesed to Naomi, leaves her homeland, leaves everything to travel back to Judah with Naomi and to be with her. And so we see these two women, one a foreigner from Moab, who Israelites do not care for Moabites. This foreigner living in Judah with her mother-in-law, Naomi, both of them in deep sorrow and with very little hope for protection and survival in the world. Their only hope is that 
a redeemer would arise and redeem them to care for them and protect them. It's this uh, Hebrew idea, and the English translation calls it a guardian redeemer. And we're introduced to Boaz in the story as one of these people who has the potential to be the guardian redeemer, to be one who cares for those in extreme duress who he's related to. And so Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz allows her to glean in his field, provides abundance from the harvest to her to take back to Naomi. And so there's this sense in which Boaz has begun to be their protector, has begun to provide for them, but has not taken it the next step yet. And so we're going to pick up the story there at the end of Ruth 2, verse 21. Ruth tells Naomi about Boaz. He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed, reminding us of how dangerous the time is, that Ruth is in danger of being assaulted. And so this is a huge gift that Boaz has given her to uh, glean in his fields and for her to be protected while gleaning in his fields. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. That's about seven more weeks. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her daughter, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. And so we, we saw a shift last week in Naomi. Uh, Naomi had been in such grief and in such despair, it seemed that she couldn't even get out of her home. And something has shifted for her when she sees that they're beginning to be provided for, when Ruth comes back with all this barley uh, that she has gleaned. And so this shift has occurred in Naomi, and now we see Naomi spring to action. She says, I've got to find a home for you. I've got to find a place where you will be at peace. When you think of the word home, what comes to mind for you? In the Hebrew consciousness, the word home would be this place of safety, this place of peace, this place of rest. It's the same word used in Psalm 23 that the good shepherd, God, will lead us by still waters that we will be at peace, we will be at home with God. And Naomi's saying, I want to find a place like that for you, where you will be protected, where you will be at peace, where you will be well cared for. She continues, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the fleshing, threshing floor. Wash Put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And so uh, there's faith, and then there's action. (laughs) And Naomi has faith, and she says, it's time to spring into action. Uh, this, I read this, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Naomi's like Ruth's handler, and Ruth is a covert agent. Don't let him see you. 
until after he has finished eating and drinking. And so Ruth's handler is telling Ruth how to go about this covert action. And she says, take a bath, put on perfume, put on a dress, and go, but don't let him see you yet. Now, in the ancient world, you would take a bath maybe once a week, maybe. And so this is a big deal, take a bath. I mean, if you're concerned about the drought, you can do what they did in the ancient world once a week. Uh, And then to put on perfume, it literally, the Hebrew literally says, uh, anoint yourself. So she was putting oils on herself. Now, this was done very rarely. And then uh, put on a dress. And so there's no mistake here that Naomi wants Ruth to be very attractive in this covert action that is about to take place. And uh, some believe that when she says to put on this dress, that uh, there's this sense in which perhaps she had been wearing clothes of mourning, and this would be a distinct sign that her mourning period was over and that she was now available. And so this is what Naomi tells Ruth to do. She continues, When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. A couple of important details here. Note where he is lying. Uh, You would not want Ruth to sneak up on the wrong man. So, Ruth, don't let him see you, but keep an eye on him and note where he's lying. Then go and lie down next to him, uncover his feet, and he will tell you what to do. Now, there's all kinds of debate in the scholarly world around what feet means. Uh, Some believe it means feet. Others say, no, uh, it's better translated legs. Naomi's telling him to uncover uh, Boaz's legs. Others say, uh, in the ancient world, this word was a euphemism for something else. And Naomi is telling Ruth to uncover something else. I'm going to leave it at that because we've got kids. Uh, But I think you get what I'm saying. So, whatever you think about that. This is what Naomi, her action plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. Ruth says in verse 5, I will do whatever you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now, you may be thinking, what's Boaz even doing sleeping in the field? Uh, So you have to understand that in the ancient world, harvest time, this was your entire income right there, exposed on the field, on the threshing floor, for anyone to take. And so it was very common that... Uh, the owner of the fields and his men would sleep in the fields during harvest time to protect the barley, to protect the grain from potential thieves. And so this is why Boaz is sleeping out there. And so Ruth notes the place where he's laying. She goes and lays down next to him. She uncovers his feet. Verse 8. 
In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. Now, this is where things, uh, where Ruth has to improvise. Because Naomi had told her exactly what to do. She does exactly what Naomi told her to do. Uh, Naomi said that Boaz would then tell her what to do. But that's not what happens. Boaz instead says, who are you? Seems like a natural question in that moment. It's dark out. You wake up. There's a woman lying there. You're startled by this. Uh, So you can feel kind of what Boaz must have felt like. I want to back up a moment and feel a little bit of what Ruth must have been feeling. She's scared. This is a huge risk. She could be thrown out of the community for doing this. So this is a huge risk on Naomi's part to ask Ruth to do this, and this is a huge risk on Ruth's part to go through with this. She is in danger of being cast out. And so her heart must have been just beating so fast as she approached Boaz and laid down next to him and uncovered his feet. And so he says, who are you? Just imagine what Ruth is feeling at this moment when Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? Earlier in the story, the first time Boaz ever saw Ruth, he says to his overseer, who is that woman? And the overseer's description of Ruth was this. He said, she is the Moabite who returned with Naomi from Moab. The overseer highlights Ruth's foreignness. He highlights the fact that she does not belong. She's allowed to glean, but she's not one of us. She doesn't belong here. She's the Moabite who returned from Moab with Naomi. So this question, who are you? Uh, On the surface, it's a very simple answer, right? But at a deeper level, it hits at the core of Ruth's identity. Who are you? How will she respond? Will she respond, I'm the Moabite? See, if you're an early reader of this text, you're saying, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Those Moabites, this is exactly what Moabite women do. They seduce Israelite men. This was the story we heard from the time of Balaam. And all the Moabite women that came and seduced the Israelite men and churned them away from God. And the early readers of this are saying, I knew it. I knew it. Just waiting for it. Here it is. Who are you? Boaz says. Will she say, I'm the Moabite? It's not what she says. She says, I am your servant, Ruth, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And so Ruth's posture towards Boaz is, I am your servant. 
spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are one of our guardian redeemers. Ruth is tapping in to this cultural understanding that Boaz has the capacity to care for them, to provide for her and Naomi. Boaz is one of these people who could do this. And so Ruth, too, is one who has faith and puts it into action. She does not stand idly by. In this verse, what Ruth is doing, this is the great thing about this, because, you know, you, you hear this story growing up, and, uh, um, you know, in Christian homes, they, they use this as an example of, of uh, you know, Ruth waiting for her Boaz, and, and this beautiful, romantic love tale of, of Ruth and Boaz, and uh, so often in Christian homes, it's, uh, you know, wait on the man. Let, let the man pursue you. Let the man ask you out. Let the man... Ruth just proposed to Boaz. That's what happened here. Ruth proposed to Boaz. She said, will you marry me? That's what she said. That's what's happening in this text. Boaz has been out harvesting. Ruth comes to him and says... Put the corner of your garment over me. You're a guardian redeemer. She's asking him to marry her. This is fabulous, isn't it? In the ancient world, we have a foreigner coming into Judah and saying to Boaz, can I have your hand in marriage? There's a whole lot else going on. In this text, this idea of the corner of the garment, this word corner is literally wing. And so she says, Will you put the wing of your garment over me? It's this word that's used of God in the Old Testament about God's care for his people, covering his people with his wing. If I can have the, the Malachi text, Malachi 4 2 says, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. It's the same Hebrew word where Ruth asked Boaz to cover her with the corner, the wing of his garment. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. We, uh, Last Sunday night at Rima, we, we talked about this text. It was so much fun talking about frolicking, which, by the way, again tonight, Dave Robinson will be leading a time together uh, of Advent and longing, the ancient longing connecting to our personal longing. I invite you to be a part of that tonight at 6. Uh, it's the same idea in Luke 13 where Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. God longs to cover us with his wings. The question is, are, are we willing? We are often a people who feel so self-sufficient. We get to a place where we intellectually assent to the idea of needing God's covering, 
but it doesn't sink into real life, everyday situations. Because we're, we're self-sufficient. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it happen. And we no longer need God's protection, God's covering. This story shows us the beautiful interplay of faith and action. We need both. We need faith that God is a God who protects us. God is a God who covers us. God is a God who provides for us. And we need to live into it in our actions. We can't just say we're self-sufficient people. Uh, In the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to one of the churches. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't Jesus standing at the door of the hearts of people who don't believe in him. This is Jesus standing at the door of the church and saying, I'm knocking, can I come in? Because you you say you believe in me, you say you trust me, you say you live in my name, but I'm not even in there. Can I come in and eat with you and be with you? God longs to cover us with his wings, to protect us, to be present to us, and for us to be present to him. This word, wings, or corner, was used earlier in Ruth. It was used in Ruth chapter 2, Boaz speaking to Ruth, and he says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Boaz has affirmed in Ruth that she has faith, that she has faith in the God of Israel and that she is taking refuge under the wing, under the corner of God's garment, that she is taking refuge there. Now what I love about what Ruth does in Ruth 3 is she is saying to Boaz, you have affirmed my faith and you have faith that I have faith that God will cover me with his wings. But you know that I am a woman, that I am a foreigner, and that really I have no protection apart from God's protection flowing through someone else to me. And so Ruth in many ways is calling Boaz to action. She is saying, you have affirmed that God is my refuge under whose wings I find covering. I am now laying next to you asking you to cover me with your wing as a sign of God's covering over me with his wing because I, as a woman and a foreigner, cannot make that happen in this ancient world on my own. Will you, Boaz, do what you have already said about me? Will you cover me? Will you protect me? Will you marry me? This is unbelievably risky, unbelievably brave and courageous on Ruth's part. Asking for Boaz's covering. Boaz has a choice here. He can protect Ruth and cover her, or he can walk away. He can protect her and cover her, or he can kick her out of the community and send her back to Moab. He could potentially have her killed. 
This is a huge risk on Ruth's part. The question is, what will Boaz do with his power? What will he do with his position? What will he do with that which he has been given? Will he protect the vulnerable? Will he protect the foreigner? Or will he cast her out? She says, you're, you're one of our guardian redeemers. You have the power to do this. Verse 10, Boaz responds, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Just feel the sigh of relief in Ruth. This is the best possible response she could have dreamed of. He has accepted her invitation to marriage. Uh, And what we'll discover next week is that he, he can't fully accept it yet, however, because there is another who is a closer relative who has the opportunity to act as guardian redeemer before Boaz does. And so tension remains in the story of whether or not Boaz and Ruth will get married, whether or not Boaz will have the opportunity to be the guardian redeemer or not. I want to talk for a moment about the the notion, the idea of power and what one does with power. Boaz is a man of power in his community. He has earlier chosen to tell his men not to bother Ruth. He has protected her in that way. And now he's taking it a step further after Ruth comes to him and says, I I will do it. I'll do everything you ask. I'll be your guardian redeemer. I'll be your husband. I'll spread the corner of my garment over you. I will protect you. We, we all carry different levels of power, different levels of influence in the home, in the workplace, in our schools, on the soccer fields. The question is, what will we do with our power. Because uh, we can choose to use our power for good, or we can use our power to disempower others. And so we have a choice in how we use power. And as we approach Christmas, and we think about the creator, God of the universe, the most powerful being, how does God use power? And therefore, as people created in God's image, how should we use power entrusted to us by God?
Philippians 2 is a beautiful text written by Paul. He uses this beautiful poetic language. Many people believe that uh, several of these verses were an uh, early hymn of the first church. And he says to this church in Philippi, he's writing this letter to this church in Philippi, and he, he says to this church in Philippi, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Jesus is one who does not use his power to his own advantage. I think that can be lesson number one about power. It's never to be used for our own advantage. Jesus didn't use his to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Paul tells us this, this creator, God of the universe, how did he use his power? He became a servant. This is the inverse nature of the kingdom of God. That Jesus teaches us, if you want to be great, you must become the least. If you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself. If you want to save your life, you must lose it for me and my sake. Jesus comes and turns everything upside down. The world's notion of power, he looks at it, he looks at Rome, he looks at the religious authorities of the day, and he says that that's not true power. That's an abuse of power. And he turns it all on its head, and he says this is what power looks like. The incarnation. This God becoming a baby and dwelling among us. And this baby growing up to be a man to serve. To serve. Paul goes on to talk about what this creator God of the universe who became a man, how he used his power. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. You want to know what power looks like? It's God on a cross, nailed there by imperial power and religious elite. That's what power looks like. Jesus says, here it is. Here's power. Dying on a cross as a servant for the world. Uh, One of the things I love so much about Christmas is that we get to reflect on this crazy idea that God was a baby. That that he became one of us 
to seek and to save and to serve and to love and to offer hope and healing and to spread the wing of his garment over us to be our guardian redeemer and buy us back. This is the hope of the incarnation. This is the hope of the cross. And ultimately, this is the hope of the resurrection. And we are invited to live into it, to live under the wing of Jesus as we spread our wings over those who are vulnerable, who are outcasts, who are without. We get to embody the incarnation. We get to be the living incarnation of Jesus, the risen Christ living in and through us to the world. The incarnation. It is our hope. The cross, it is our hope. The resurrection, it is our hope. We are a people of hope. We get to bring this hope with us wherever we go. In every area we have influence over, we get to bring this hope, this healing. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. God, thank you for the example of Jesus, for his life, Thank you for this season where we get to reflect on the beauty and the mystery of the incarnation and how Jesus came and turned all our ideas of power on their heads. God, I pray that we would become more and more your people of hope, spreading the love of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the healing of Jesus being your covering over those who need it most. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you go this morning, may you know that peace, the peace of Jesus. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his shalom, the very peace of the incarnate, the crucified, and the risen Christ. Amen.